Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Woodrow Wilson Center Canada Institute in Washington, D.C. Here we are on uh, a sunny day on Pennsylvania Avenue, and we have a very special guest here today for our Diplomacy 201 podcast. Uh, my name is Audrey Mukbadai. I'm the host of Diplomacy 201, and our guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Kane, who is an American journalist and author. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thanks, Audrey, for having me. And what I thought we would do, uh, Jeffrey, thank you for being here. And what I thought we would do is have a conversation today about one of your areas of expertise, which is Korea. Uh, we're interested in hearing your perspectives today. Happy to talk. Jeffrey, what got you interested in Korea in the first place? I was actually based in Southeast Asia for a long time. I was in Vietnam and Cambodia. This was 10 years ago in 2008. And I was looking for, uh, as a journalist, a new story to cover. I was looking for something fresh, something unusual. And uh, the Korean Peninsula had a lot going on. So this was a time when North Korea was threatening war against the world, threatening war against the U.S. North Korea even became the first country ever to directly threaten American soil with nuclear war. Uh, and this was something that I found fascinating. I, I mean, I, I thought that North Korea being one of the most isolated kingdoms in the world, one of the remaining dynasties, essentially from medieval times, I, I found North Korea to be a country that um, is often misunderstood and that needed some sort of journalistic coverage. You know, it needed somebody there who could, you know, go in and write about it and try to understand it. So I first went to Korea in uh, 2009 and uh, I was really looking for insight into, you know, what makes North Korea tick. Why do they threaten war? Why do they test missiles? Why do they do all these things that to an outside observer would fundamentally be against their interests because they're they're risking um, they're risking complete annihilation. I mean, they're they're risking war. They're risking uh, an outsized conflict. So this is really what got me into North Korea in particular and why I decided to stay in Seoul for five years. So let's start at the at the very beginning, which is history. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know the history of South Korea, North Korea. Uh, the Korean Peninsula writ large. Can you give us a sort of two-minute summary of the last 200 years? Yes. So the Korean Peninsula was a, it was a slow-paced, rural, uh, dusty peninsula for many years. It, so for 800 years, it was under a single dynasty called the Chosun Dynasty, which was essentially a society that was unchanging. Uh, Western missionaries would visit Korea at the time, and it would be called the Hermit Kingdom, which is what we call North Korea today. The Korean Peninsula was unified. It was colonized by Japan formally in 1910, annexed after the Russo-Japanese War between Russia and Japan. Um, and then uh, for the following 35 years until the end of World War II, it was a Japanese colony. It was a industrial base for the Japanese war effort. And uh, Japanese culture shaped a lot of how Korea operates today, North and South Korea. Um, in 1940, in the late 1940s, the American military government arrived and forced the Japanese surrender. And this is when North and South Korea were divided at the uh, 38th parallel. 
into the Soviet side and the American side. The Korean War broke out in 1950. It ended in 1953 with a ceasefire with no peace treaty, which means that the Korean War is still going on. It's still technically, you know, a conflict. It's a live war. Yeah, it is a live war, and it could spark again at any time. We never know what will happen. From the time from the Korean War to the present, South Korea embarked on a miraculous industrial growth project. They wanted to become a first world country on par with Japan and America, the two powers at the time, and they succeeded. They did it through a blunt authoritarianism. North Korea wanted to essentially do the same thing. It had Soviet help, Chinese help, but the Cold War ended, Soviet subsidies collapsed, and then we got North Korea where it is today, um, suffering. It suffered a famine, uh, food shortages, extreme poverty, prison camps, one of the most horrible regimes in the world. And that's really what set the stage for where we are now. And you visited North Korea on multiple occasions, is that correct? Yes, yes. I visited three times. My most recent visit was in the fall of 2016. I visited Pyongyang, and Pyongyang is the capital. And from there, I took a train through the country. Uh, I went up to the northern border with China and the northern border with Russia, a town called Chongjin, which is traditionally uh, closed off to foreigners. I mean, it's it's one of those cities where you just can't go there. And, and only recently the regime started relaxing that. So I saw vast swaths of the countryside. It was just such a fascinating trip. And how does an American journalist gain access to North Korea? It's surprisingly not that hard. North Korea does bring in journalists all the time. There are always delegations going. The government there is eager to promote itself to try to make itself look good. Uh, most journalists I know contact the United Nations office in New York, the North Korean office at the UN. And that's the venue through which uh, they arrange tours for reporters or, you know, they'll, they'll have fixers who can help you out, who can help you get in. Um, and, you know, fixers who work for the state? Fixers, private fixers who are connected to North Korea. So there are a few of them. So you contact North Korean diplomats the, working at the UN in New York who then put you in touch with private fixers. In my case, I was contacted by the government to visit. Oh, they came to you proactively. Yes, yes. And they do that a lot. They, they send out emails and press releases occasionally to you know, the major news organizations, and they'll bring in people, say, if they're having a military parade or there's a, a major holiday. Um, you know, when I, when I went in there, it was the 70th anniversary of the founding of the Korean Workers' Party, so the Communist Party. And they brought in all these journalists from you know, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, um, Time, The Economist, all these places. And we saw an actual military parade. It was just, it, it was insane. I mean, it was, it was the kind of thing that you, you would only see in 1950 in the Soviet Union, but it exists today in 2018. But this is what they want to show you. And at the time, you were working for who? At that time, I, I had left my job and I was a freelancer. Um, I was writing for various publications, but I, I was working originally for Global Post, a uh, independent media outlet, and I was based in Seoul. Right. So they come to you because you're based in Seoul. And you had previously written for The Economist and Time Magazine. Yes. And that's how you got profiled for the North Koreans to find you? Yes, yes. So they, they know who the foreign correspondents are. And it's not just in Seoul, but they do keep an eye on your reporting and they want to know who you are and what you're interested in, what you write about. And yes, they do reach out to you occasionally and they do invite reporters to come in. And is there an implicit quid pro quo when they bring you in for this type of visit? The 
understanding that they hope for is that you don't criticize the regime. They hope that you're going to uh, succumb to their censorship, that you're going to paint a good portrait of them. And this is something that I know because my government minder told me up front, we were, we were having soju together, which is a Korean spirit. <laughs> and uh, this is something that you know, Koreans drink a lot, both in the North and the South. And after a few shots of soju, he told me, Jeff, please don't leave North Korea and then write bad things about us. We really just want to look good in the eyes of the world. And what is the population of North Korea versus South Korea? So, uh, so North Korea has about 25 million people. And South Korea, if I'm correct, I'd have to double check. It's uh, 60 million or 80 million around there. In amongst the 25 million in North Korea, what percentage are urban versus rural? In North Korea? Yeah. Overwhelmingly rural. It's a society that's stratified by the government according to your trustworthiness to the party. And your trustworthiness is based on your family history. Mm -hmm. Did your grandparents fight against Japan or America in the Korean War? Um, have your parents been loyal party members since then? You know, are you somebody who has shown this loyalty from a young age in school, in high school, in, in the university? It's, it's the kind of place where everybody is given a ranking and there are so many different rankings. I mean, I, I can't even keep track of them. But this this is what determines where you can live. Yeah. So Pyongyang is a city that is reserved for the most trusted Communist Party elites. Um, Communist Party elites are affluent people. I mean, they, they tend to be people living in central Pyongyang who are just well known to the regime. And then as you go out, you know, you, you can drive out, take a train out. North Korea gets progressively less trusted on this, this stratification system. So... Well, well, you're in the countryside and, um, you know, you can see the poverty, you can see the huts and you can see, you know, that people are living with nothing. And th these are the people who are a part of either they call it the wavering class or the untrusted okay. group of people. What does a wavering class mean? The wavering class is the middle group in this Communist Party system. Um, so this system is called the Songbun and the Songbun, it's, it's sort of like a hierarchy that's in force. The wavering class is the middle and it means that you're... You're somewhat trusted. They know who you are. They know that you are, you know, maybe in the past you've had family members who've supported the party, but they're not entirely sure about you. You you could become, you know, one of the hostile class. That's the lowest class. And if you become a member of the hostile class, that's the class that you do not want to be a part of because, um, you know, th these are the people who might disappear into prison camps. And how is this information recorded as to who is in what class and how, how are actions actually translated to class mobility or class movement? Mm -hmm. So we don't know um, for sure enti like entirely how the regime does this simply because it's one of the most isolated like regimes is it, in the is world. Is it a local party elite you just you get on the wrong side of and suddenly you drop? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a part of that. So, you know, each, each village has its own, you know, commune chief. And, mm -hmm. you know, North Korea is a very collectivized society in that way, where each, each village acts as its own political unit. And the commune chiefs are appointed by Pyongyang or they're village elders? Uh, I think they're mostly appointed by Pyongyang. But I, I need to be careful about all this because, you know, North Korea, a lot of the information that we have on North Korea comes from refugees and defectors. Right. And some of them are very well placed. They know how the regime works and they tell us how this works. But the reality is that you're never going to be able to sit down with a North Korean official and, you know, put a microphone in his face and he'll tell you 
how they decide, you know, how they decide who goes to the prison camps and who stays in Pyongyang with a nice Samsung TV, you know, in their nice apartment. So, you know, it's it's um it, it's still a hazy picture, but we know the Songbun system and we we generally know how it works. And what is the major source of employment in North Korea? Is it agriculture? Agriculture is a major source, the military, the government. North Korea has, for much of its history, been a military state. Mm -hmm. And its military, the estimates, I'd have to double-check the exact numbers, but you know, it's, it's one of those million-man armies, perhaps similar to Saddam Hussein's Iraq or um, you know, Mubarak's Egypt, one of these states where the military occupies a, a privileged position in society. So, and is the military a source of social mobility? Yes, it is. Military service defines a lot of who you are. It defines, you know, your status in society on the Songbun system. Military service determines if you're going to move on to, you know, a, a fine career in the in the party, which is aspired by a lot of people. But military service is a major source of economic viability for North Korea, whatever little viability it has. Because the military doubles as a construction corps and as an agriculture corps. The party will call up the military, you know, say, every year or so during construction season. And uh, you know, all these young men will suddenly be mobilized and they'll go out and they'll, they'll have these campaigns where they're supposed to build the nation, develop the nation. So this is where you know, a lot of North Korean, you could say, development comes from. This is where they get their apartment buildings, their schools, their hospitals, uh, because the military is on guard, ready to, you know, spring into action. And who funds the military? So North Korea is a heavily sanctioned country. Mm -hmm. It's not easy for them to get the um, the funding that they need. But, you know, this is another one of those shadowy topics where, you know, there there are lots, there's lots of information out there, but it's it's hard to piece together a full picture of what's going on. North Korea does have all sorts of methods for evading sanctions and for getting the, the finance, the oil capital that it needs to fund its military and its nuclear program. North Korean embassies are known to double as profit-making ventures around the world. So what's for... Their, yeah, please, what's their line of business to generate a profit? Well, in the past, they've been caught selling drugs in the Middle East. Yeah, trafficking, selling drugs. Is uh, that right? Yeah. What yeah. kind of drugs? Hashish, uh, crystal meth. So they're using diplomatic bags yes. to move product. Yeah, they use their diplomatic status as a as a cover. It is the sense that these are rogue diplomats of the state, or is this a state policy? This oh no, this is um, without a doubt a state policy. So North Korean embassies. I, I've heard I've interviewed refugees who have been North Korean diplomats before, and they've all told me North Korean embassies they're cashless, and the government says, "Okay, you're an embassy." You're there, make money, and they just make money, you know, however they can. So but they're it, it's functioning as honorary consuls. Yeah, honorary consuls. That's as corrupt honorary consuls. Yeah. There are lots of other ways that the government makes money. So, um, after the Cold War ended and the the North Korean economy collapsed, there were all these empty factories on the countryside. We know that the military came in, a lot of generals and units, and they they took over these factories and turned them into crystal meth labs. North Korean crystal meth is one of the purest in the world. Is that right? Yes, it's been trafficked through Southeast Asia. A couple of years ago, there was a group of, of foreign um, people, I think a, a British individual, uh, an American, I think a Filipino and a Thai guy, but they were trafficking North Korean crystal meth through Thailand, and they were arrested and extradited to the United States to face trial. And I think that trial finished, and I do think that they served a prison sentence. 
but this is just an example. I mean, it, I, I looked into this and the crystal meth was like, they said 99% pure, 90% pure. It was just insane how refined the North Korean government had made this. And what is the domestic drug policy in North Korea? Uh, in terms of... It, consumption. Consumption? Is, yeah. Would it be an issue if a North Korean citizen was caught yeah. with crystal meth or hashish or anything like this? We do believe that there is a crystal meth epidemic in North Korea. Is that right? Yes, yes. And it has been written about, it has been documented, uh, mostly through defector testimony. But that okay. whole, that North Korean-Chinese border... Crystal meth epidemic amongst whom? Rural folks, children of elites, who... Rural folks who, you know, are overworked and... Uh, Got it. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Who have access to this. Because crystal meth, it's one of those... It's one of those drugs that you can make in a kitchen. It's one of those drugs that's uh, handy. That's my, yeah, my knowledge of crystal meth comes from Breaking Bad. My sense, as I, as you're speaking, because it's very interesting, is that the ingredients are widely available. Mm -hmm. All you really need is to know the police aren't going to break down your lab. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, in North Korea, it's a trade that is tolerated to some extent. I mean, it's something that does bring in money, especially foreign currency mm -hmm. for the regime. The, the regime is always looking for ways to get foreign currency, and that's why it sponsors drug trafficking around the world. Because drugs, that's, that's a huge profit that they're making right there, I would imagine. And it's all coming in dollars. It's coming in euros. Their currency is worthless. The won. And so, and when you say drug epidemic, I mean, what, what scale are we talking about among domestic North Koreans? It's hard to tell. Um, I, I mean, it's not something that, you know, it, that's another one of those topics that you just can't show up and, you know, document, go to the local police station and they'll give you data on how many arrests they've made on crystal meth. North Korea just doesn't have that sort of data at all. But based on uh, refugee testimony, we do know that since the 1990s in particular, it's something that's been pretty widespread. One of the other drugs in North Korea, this is just a funny factoid on the side, but uh, marijuana is apparently legal in North Korea. I, I mean, I don't think people smoke it. I don't think that it's a drug that's used that widely, and I didn't get that sense there. But there is no formal law in the books that mm -hmm. says you can't smoke marijuana, which is just, it's one of those ironies of this regime because it is one of the, you know, most authoritarian countries in the world. And yet they have these funny quirks in their system in which, you know, well, crystal meth is widespread and marijuana is allowed. So, you know, it's just strange. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So let me, let me take this back a step. Who are North Korea's friends? Are they other communist parties worldwide? North Korea doesn't have many true friends. Um, even the Chinese, one of their former allies, has been turning their back on them. Uh, Burma used to be a close partner. There were, there were stories uh, about five years ago that the Burmese were cooperating uh, in their nuclear program, possible nuclear program, with the North Koreans. We know that um, Syria has gotten some of its materials from North Korea. There's been a good deal of trade there. There have been rumors about a Pakistani relationship in the past, but I looked into those rumors and I couldn't find much evidence. North Korea is a country that is at what rock about bottom. I, I wouldn't call Russia today an ally. Okay. You know, the Soviet Union, certainly. Okay. But North Korea was always one of those diff difficult allies for them. North Korea would play off the Soviets and the Chinese against each other to extract whatever it could during the Cold War. So the North Koreans used to be, there are two North Koreas. There is the Cold War North Korea, and there's the post-Cold War North Korea. The Cold War North Korea was a country that was heavily ideological, that believed in 
the purity of its racial bloodline and the godlike status of its leader. North Korea is the only country in the world that is run from the grave, according to its constitution. The eternal leader is Kim Il-sung, the founder of the country, and he still runs it according to that document. Um, and as a result... Wow. And, and what does that mean to the ordinary North Korean? When they hear that, what does that mean to them? Well, I think a lot of them truly believe it. I mean, I think that it's, a, it's an idea that still holds sway with them. It's almost a religious idea? It's religious. I think a lot of it comes from Imperial Japan in World War II. Okay. Back when North Korea was this ideological state, it would form what are called Juche study groups. And Juche is the ideology of self-reliance that North Korea has always promulgated. And these diplomats and students, they would hold exchanges. They would go to Africa. They would, they would find anti-colonial struggles around the world. And they would form these Juche study groups in which people would get together and study the thought of Kim Il-sung. They wanted to promote him as an anti-colonial figure as much as he was a godlike figure. So this this formed a lot of early relationships with, uh, you know, North Korea and Africa, African countries, uh, Western African countries, Sierra, Sierra Leone. I mean, there, there are examples in Africa. You can go around and you can find um, statues of leaders and, you know, statues commemorating, commemorating ideas in that country that are built by North Korean uh, sculptors and that are clearly done in a North Korean socialist realist style. But since then, uh, the North Korean ideology has collapsed. The economy has collapsed. There's really not much that North Korea has to offer the world anymore. So it's really all about you know smuggling those drugs, evading sanctions, doing whatever it can to get the foreign currency it needs to survive, to stay in power. I mean, what percentage of North Korea's foreign currency might come from drugs or illicit drugs? I, I think that it's more than we often assume. I mean, I, I do think that a lot of the global estimates on North Korea's economy, I think that it's that these numbers are often underestimated. I think that um, the North Korean elite is far wealthier than we have uh, assumed in many cases. And, you know, it, this is just the nature of looking at the regime. I mean, Kim Jong-un has his yacht. But he's he's a top guy. Yeah. But the number 100 guy, is he also moving in a $7 million yacht? Uh, no, no. Does he have property abroad? I think that they would probably would have property abroad. The number 100 guy, yes, going overseas. So when I was in North Korea, one of my minders was a young woman who had lived in France for a long time. She was the daughter of a vice minister um, who, you know, she, she pulled out her smartphone. And she should, by the way, all North Koreans have a smartphone. Samsungs? So I, apparently some of them do, and they have Samsung and LG TVs. Okay. But the North Korean government has created its own operating system. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's its, its own operating system that they can all use. Um, and this is what keeps them closed off from the outside internet. <laughs> they have an intranet, so it's all, you know, so It's internal. a walled garden. It's a walled garden. It's exactly that. Well, she was showing me photos on her smartphone of her time in Paris and her, um, you know, explorations of the world and all the places she was going. And it was clear that she was from an elite wealthy family because she would have photos of the best hotel in Paris. It would be like a five-star hotel with, you know, glamorous Rococo architecture. She would have, um, you know, she showed me a photo of her apartment and there's a big screen, like a Samsung TV and massive speakers that are, you know, clearly imported from Japan or somewhere. But was this propaganda because you're a journalist, so they put a minder who's got these kinds of pictures on the phone in front of you, so you'll leave with an impression of wealth and success? We do know 
that they do craft propaganda stories for foreign visitors. Um, and we know this because there was a documentary a couple of years ago in which the, the filmmakers got uh, footage of them planning the stories that they were going to offer to the foreigners. But the stories that, that they craft, that they make up, are usually more socialist in nature. We, they, they wouldn't tell me a story about being a, a wealthy landed elite because that's essentially what the North Korean state hates according to its ideology. That's, that's what they're trying to fight. Um, so usually the stories that they will tell you are, are you know, I, I was a, a miner, um, you know, I was, I was working for the socialist project as a, a mining guy uh, out in a mountain somewhere in the countryside. And then we had the famine in the 1990s and there was starvation all over, but we, we stuck with Kim Jong-il, our, our dear leader. And we, you know, we, we marched forward, they call it the arduous march, and we, we fought through it, and we got through it, and we, we defeated the American imperialists. We know that it was a, a conspiracy by them to create a famine in North Korea. They wanted to isolate us, but we stood firm. That's, that's the kind of story they'll tell you that's made up. And do they believe it, or is it just dangerous to not tell it? I do think that a lot of them believe it. I, I've always gotten the sense talking to North Koreans, including refugees who have been gone, that they have this ingrained from childhood, this mindset that our leader is great, our leader is a god, and you know we have to do what we can to defend him. I mean, I've met defectors down in Seoul who still have these lingering thoughts of you know the North Korean regime being one that takes care of them, that cares for them like a benevolent parent, hmm. sort of this Confucian idea of the country is like a, a body and the government is the brain and we are the arms. And how are they able to instill this idea into people? Well, you grow up and from the youngest age, you are just bombarded with propaganda. Everywhere you go, you see the portrait of the great leader, Kim Il-sung, and his son, the dear leader, Kim Jong-il. So I was there for two weeks one time. Two weeks is a long time to be in North Korea. And well, why do you say that? Well, it's it's a long time because usually they let you in for three or four oh, days. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. Did it feel like a long time? You're saying it, it was just a long time to get granted access. Both. Okay. It was both. Just being there for two weeks, you you start to feel how they feel. You start okay. to feel, you start to get warped into their mindset. Okay. Because it's, it's just this weird effect where you're here for two weeks and you've just been getting bombarded with propaganda you know, of, of like... Well, where? <laughs> like on the street? Or the Just everywhere. Like on the subway, you know, there's the great leader standing. Like a, they have a mosaic of him. You you pass, you know, you pass a statue. You have a guide who's constantly telling you stories about, you know, how great he is and how, you know, he's just wonderful and the American imperialists need to be blown up. And, like... <laughs> and does Kim Jong-un, uh, the grandson, uh, does he garner the same reference from the people? Kim Jong-un? Yeah. They will tell you yes. If you ask them, yeah, I don't know how truthful that is. Um, North Korea still places only the portraits of his grandfather and his father in every home and in every classroom. Is they, that right? They, yeah, they haven't elevated they haven't elevated Kim Jong Un to the point yet where they'll put his portrait next to his predecessors. And why is that? Do you, do you think it would be dangerous to push that right now? I think that um, he needs to show deference to his parents. This is the Korean system. This is something that also exists in South Korea in a lot mm -hmm. of companies. Mm -hmm. A young leader cannot stand up and defy his parents and appear as if he's somebody superior to them or somebody 
greater to them. So he needs time to build his CV, so to speak, to build his accomplishments, to build his persona before his portrait can be put. And how is Kim Jong-un able to maintain power? It's a mixture of brute force and propaganda and um, promises to the people of a better life. So first, purges. Ever since Kim Jong-un took power in 2011, he has had his uncle executed. Mm -hmm. He had his half-brother assassinated with VX nerve gas mm -hmm. in a Malaysian airport, which is terrifying mm -hmm. that they're doing this overseas. He has uh, purged a number of generals from the military, people who are older than him. Essentially, he's been getting rid of his father's people and establishing a kingdom of his own with his own trusted aides. Um, so that's one way, brute force. Second, he is very skilled at propaganda. Mm -hmm. We know that the North Korean regime has embarked on some land reforms in the past few years based on refugee testimony. Um, their farmers now have more freedom to farm their own products and they, they get more of their own plots now, which is one of the one of the starting phases in any reform from communism to a free market, I think. That's usually one of the first things that happens. Uh, and it's this promise of a life that's better, of an economy that's better, that I think a lot of North Koreans can feel for. They they often frame themselves as being the victims of you know an American bombing campaign in the Korean War and American sanctions, and they feel that and their these leader. Are true. Yeah, yeah. Th these are true claims against yeah. the U.S. Uh, and its actions. Um, they see all this, all these things going on, and they see their leader as somebody who overcomes that, somebody who they can put their faith in and who will guide them to better times, who will stand up against the Japanese and the Americans. And is he that? I, I, I have mixed feelings. You know, I, I, it's hard to tell for sure what's going on at, at that level, at the very top of the regime, because it's just so, so secret. But we, we don't know for certain who his allies and his enemies might be within his government. I mean, we do know that he's gotten rid of people who appear to be his enemies. Um, not only gotten rid of them, but he has erased them from history. They've gone back in old North Korean news reports. And they just, like, you can go online and see it, but they've just erased these guys' names and taken them out of so old it's photos. It's Orwellian. Yeah, extremely Orwellian. The most Orwellian you can find. Um, but I, I just wonder, okay, so... The problem when talking about this with North Korea is that everybody predicts that North Korea is going to collapse, that this cannot continue, that they are just unhinged and they're crazy and they're mad and they're going to bring about their own downfall. People have been saying this since the end of the Cold War. They've been saying this since 1994 when the U.S. and North Korea signed their first diplomatic agreement to denuclearize. And it's never happened. And every time people say it's going to happen, it doesn't happen. I mean, are we going to keep making these predictions over time? Are we going to keep saying that North Korea is going to collapse or that Kim Jong-un is not the right guy? I think that they have shown a strong, adept way, some sort of tactic that they have for staying in power against all odds. And because of that, I think that they're going to be there for a while. I think that Kim Jong-un will be that guy. When, um, when people say against all odds, uh, Kim Jong-un remains in power, what they mean is sort of from the American perspective. Or from, from sort of educated Americans, might say, or educated Canadians, how is this guy in power? 
But that doesn't mean it's against all odds. That just means it's against what people here understand. Yes, yes. He might be the favorite over there. Yes. Actually, I, I do agree with you. I do think that Americans and Westerners uh, misinterpret North Korea a lot and misinterpret the Korean Peninsula in general. Uh, my observation has been that if you look at most world leaders or many world leaders, other countries will often wonder how that person came to power. Yes. But actually, there's something that resonates in their own country. Yes. I, I think that the Kim dynasty resonates in North Korea, and I think that it's something that goes back through centuries in Korea. This is not a new force that's you know, come in during the Cold War after the Korean War. This is something that Koreans have been doing for centuries. So, Jeffrey, what's the economy like? Where are the economic opportunities in North Korea? North Korea is a small economy, so you're not going to find a ton of opportunities. But if you look in the right places, there are some interesting projects going on. So when I was in North Korea, one of the most interesting projects I learned about was SEK Studios, which is an animation studio staffed by North Koreans that uh, outs that does outsourcing work. So they'll, you know, they'll they'll uh, the, the South Korean animators will need something done. They call on SEK, and SEK will draw a cartoon for them. And it was, you know, just just hearing about this. I never visited, but hearing about this and hearing about the projects they did was just fascinating because you don't you don't equate North Korea with you know cartoons being animated. And okay, so this is an interesting thing. Um, animation studios. I assume these are high human capital, high uh, you know high human capital type ventures. What is the North Korean education system like? The education system is, um, it's actually, I mean, that's that's a very open-ended question, but uh, the education system is, um, a lot of it is propaganda, but in North Korea there is an emphasis on science and engineering and uh, STEM fields. A lot of North Korean graduates, they'll go to Kim Il-sung University in Pyongyang, which is their elite university, and uh, they come out learning to be, say, master dam engineers. I mean, I've met a lot of North Korean refugees who were professors of engineering and, you know, they were road engineers or transport engineers or they made, um, you know, even software. So a, a lot of North Korean firms have uh, have outsourced, have been the source of outsourced, have, how do you say that? So North Korean firms have been contacted by foreign firms to make, you know, software or games for the iPhone or for, you know, Android phones. This is the kind of thing they do. So they, they do have skills. They do have opportunities. And is this because, and now are the STEM subjects in North Korea, or say access to Kim Il-sung University, are these meritocratic? Are these test-based? Or are these children of party elites? They are mostly the children of party elites. So yes, there is the element of, of um, you know, helping the Communist Party, being a loyal Communi Communist Party member, and then getting access to better education, better universities, better high schools. But uh, North Korea still does have exams. I mean, it's it's hard to tell whether these exams are corrupted. It's hard to tell for sure what goes on in the country. But um, yes, they do take some very tough exams. And to get entry to Kim Il-sung University is quite hard. They look at a number of different factors. And what are the industries of the future in North Korea? So um, North Korea has a few of these special economic zones set up. One of them is at Rosson, it's called Rosson, and it's by the Russian border. Um, but I've met a lot of foreign investors who've gone to these places and they've looked at garment factories, sort of basic light industries, 
Um, I've heard some talk of petrochemicals. And what are labor costs compared to, say, Southeast Asia? Much lower, much lower. One of the big former success stories was the industrial zone at Kaesong. And mm -hmm. Kaesong is an area just north of the North Korean border with South Korea. So it's, it's accessible from South Korea. Um, this was opened about 20 years ago during a time of a diplomatic detente between the two sides. And the South Korean businesses went there, uh, Hyundai went there, a, a lot of different groups went to this place and they opened factories. And these factories employed North Korean labor to make mostly garments and, you know, like I said, light industry and that sort of thing. But it, it, it was successful for a while. Now, since we're talking about industry in the Korean Peninsula, I want to shift to, uh, for a moment to South Korea because I understand you're publishing a book on Samsung. Yes. My book is about the Samsung Empire. It's due out from Crown in late 2019. Right What's now. the book called? Well, the tentative title is The Republic of Samsung. Okay. I call it The Republic of Samsung because that's what South Koreans call their country, The Republic of Samsung. It's The Republic of Korea. That's the formal name for mm -hmm. South Korea. Mm -hmm. Samsung is a company that um, spans everything, all life in South Korea. It's a company that you can live cradle to grave on with its products. We know them for making smartphones. We know them for making televisions. But in South Korea, they build apartments. Um, you know, they have microwaves. They they sell life insurance. They uh, they do shipping. They build ships. They you know they like they have a hospital. Um, they you know they they have a wedding hall for their employees. You can get married at Samsung headquarters if you want. And it's literally twenty five percent of the GDP of the country. So the. Um, you can't really measure, um, you know, just numerically, you can't measure uh, sales against GDP because GDP is value added. It's a different mm -hmm. uh, calculation. The, the correct number is around 4 or 5% of GDP okay. if you do okay. that. But Samsung Electronics, which is one company within the Samsung empire, accounts for about 20% of South Korean exports. And so what is life like for a Samsung employee in South Korea? So say an officer, a company man. Samsung calls these guys the Samsung man. Okay. The Samsung man is somebody who gives his life to the company, who um, enters upon graduating. You take Samsung's annual national exam, which mm -hmm. is a big deal, very tough. Uh, I looked through some of their preparation books, and the questions they ask are just beyond me. Okay. Sophisticated math. Um, but you um, traditionally in South Korea, you would be expected to take a job out, out of the university and then you spend your life at Samsung and you're you're sort of seen as the cultured gentleman in a suit who commits everything to family and company. And mm -hmm. for you, company is family. They're both interchangeable. Is this similar to the IBM man a generation ago in yes. USA? It's a similar similar concept. And IBM is a company that had a similar structure to Samsung. I mean, they, the, um, the human resources department in these East Asian companies is extremely powerful and elevated. And their job is not in the West, like how we treat human resources. Human resources is a department that molds uh, these corporate employees into Samsung men or Hyundai men for life. So would joining Samsung and becoming a Samsung man or Samsung woman conceivably uh, be similar to joining the South Korean civil service? Yes, yes. The fundamental structure that they've set up at all of these South Korean companies is that basically the the corporate bureaucracy, the employees at the field level are a civil service, and the chairman is an emperor-like figure. And that's uh, how these companies operate. They're looking for civil servants under this Confucian system 
in which you have a family leader up top who issues uh, vision and edicts and philosophy. I mean, they'll they'll uh, write books and give speeches and tell all the Samsung men or all the Hyundai men to study them, to study the chairman's thought. And their job is to execute the vision of the chairman. And what is the purpose of this sort of structure of having the family member as sort of an emperor type figure? It's, um, is it productivity or is it just convenient or expedient for the family? It's uh, actually, it's a system that I think has been misunderstood and criticized a lot in the West, especially on Wall Street with the financial warriors. Mm -hmm. um, it's a system that was set up to, first of all, ensure stability in times of extreme poverty in South Korea. But second of all, it ensured a long-term vision, a long-term long growth plan. So Samsung is run by a family, three-generation dynasty, same as North Korea. Hyundai, three-generation dynasty, same leadership style as North Korea mm -hmm. in that regard. And the Samsung system is set up so that traditionally one company, let's say they're doing telecommunications, they would make enormous profit and then... The Samsung chairman would declare that we're going to make semiconductors, and semiconductors is one of these cyclical industries that um, you know is constantly having downturns. That requires huge capital investment, huge human resources. Just a really tough industry, and they will divert their profits from, say, telecommunications into semiconductors, which, under the American shareholding system, would not be possible because that would just be you know you're just giving up your profit for another company. But this is why they were successful. So let's say. Um... I'll make a leap here. Let's say you're a Samsung man and you work for Samsung and you're doing good work and you're in this big company and you've got, as you say, this emperor-like structure. How does a South Korean Samsung man perceive North Korea and what's happening there? Samsung employees joke to me in private that uh, their company is like a corporate North Korea. Okay. No prison camps, obviously. I'm not accusing them. You know, I'm not accusing Samsung of being a vicious you know, human rights abusing. Would they, get fired if, would they get fired if they were caught on the record saying this? Saying that publicly, yes, okay. yes. And Samsung doesn't like that comparison. It's something that South Koreans often joke about, and sometimes they're serious about it too, but it's it's a comparison that shows the shared heritage between North and South Korea as one country. Um, the um, the Samsung men internally, they, you know, so they hold a mass games. They, they Until recently, they held a mass games every year. So I'm sure that you've seen the North Korean videos where everybody gets together and they, you know, they march on a football field and they make formations and symbols. They make a picture of, you know, the great leader and, and all that. So uh, until a couple of years ago, Samsung did the same thing every single summer. It was called the Samsung Summer Festival. Okay. They would get all their recruits together and do, they would all march. Do the other companies, like, does Hyundai do this? And... No, no. They do have a militaristic structure, but Samsung is the company that I think commands the most discipline and loyalty in this regard. Why is that? It goes back to the vision of the founder. His okay. name was Lee Byung-chul. He, um, he was also a man who was deeply inspired by Japan, educated uh, by the Japanese. He went to Waseda University, which was the best in Japan at the time. And he drew on a lot of these Japanese industrial influences. So he would look at you know, Sony, a good example, or uh, Mitsubishi. And he would study the way that these... These corporate bureaucrats, you know, would go to work in uniforms. You know, they would they would have a company uniform. They would wear a company pin. They would stand up in the morning and sing the national anthem, and then sing the company anthem before they got to work for the day. He studied this collective system, and he saw the power in it. He saw that if you inspired your employees with a sense of patriotism, 
then you can really create a company that's going to be successful. And that's where that comes from. So taking this back to North Korea, within the North Korean economy, what is the relationship between North Korean consumers or North Korean state and these large South Korean companies, whether it's Daewoo or Hyundai or Samsung? I mean, do they sell in North Korea? Do they produce in North Korea? Hyundai is the company you know, we, that we know as an automaker. We yeah. drive these Hyundai cars in America. Hyundai invested a ton in North Korea about 20 years ago. Okay. Um, and this also led to some scandals. So uh, Hyundai was found to be uh, basically tunneling a payment, a massive payment of millions of dollars to the North Korean government from the South Korean government with the purpose of getting the South Korean president a meeting with Kim Jong-il, the dictator at the time. And this led to his Nobel Peace Prize, the, the South Korean president was respected mm -hmm. yeah so um hyundai was the company that i think led the way in setting up the links with north korea between between north and south and you know there's a whole backstory to this but i won't get into it now so now that we're back into north korea it's been in the news president trump kim, kim jong-un met recently denuclearization talks tell us about this what's going on it's a strange situation, I'll put it that way. Okay. In some ways, it's history repeating itself. In some ways, it's completely new because Donald Trump is the first American president to ever meet with a North Korean leader. Okay. This has never happened before. And the speed and the unusual circumstances in which it happened were also just so odd. You know, just six months ago, North Korea was threatening war again. They were making all these threats and testing missiles. And uh, that was really a low point in relations. Were these empty threats? I think that usually they're empty, but North Korea has acted on them before. I mean, in, in 2009 and 2010, they uh, sank a South Korean ship and killed about 46 sailors. Okay, military ship. Military ship, yeah, okay. called the Chonan uh, okay. Corvette. And then after that, they shelled a South Korean island and killed, uh, I think, four or five Marines. Okay, South Korean Marines. South Koreans, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, and contractors. But, you know, these were serious provocations. That was the first land attack on, like, a former land attack and artillery strike since the Korean War. How did they prevent South Korea from responding militarily? The president of South Korea wrote in his memoir that he called the, um, the military on guard and that they were going to possibly strike back yeah. in, re in retaliation. The military resisted the order. And then, you know, traditionally the U.S. would always step in and prevent the South Koreans from fighting back. You know, this is something that happened in the Cold War, too, a lot. So President Trump, who meets with Kim Jong-un, what are the dynamics there? And how is that perceived within the Korean elite, South, North Korean elites, and also by the North Korean people? You know, one of the funny things that struck me is that North Korea put out a propaganda video about this trip to Singapore, Kim Jong-un's trip to Singapore, where he met Donald Trump. And they showed Singapore in all of its wealth and all of its... Okay pristine surroundings, which tells you that, um, you know, North Koreans know about Singapore. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're looking at it and they can see that it's a prosperous city-state. Yeah. Um, I think that right there just says so much that, you know, North Koreans are not, they're not stupid. Right. They know about the And they're the not ill-informed. They're not ill-informed. I mean, they, they're not as well-informed as you and I are sitting here, but they have sources of information there. Well, and they would have family who know about Seoul, too, right? Oh, yeah, of course. The The North Koreans know all about South Korea. They know that it's a wealthier state. They watch South Korean dramas. They're often smuggled in on okay. DVDs, on USBs. They know that life there is better. 
but they see their wealth as the result of being a traitor nation to the Americans, being uh, a capitalist lackey. Do they think of life and soul as better, or life and soul as more prosperous, but somehow more empty? A lot of refugees I've met have said that their lives and soul um, do feel empty, that mm -hmm. they, they come down south and that they're overwhelmed. You know, they go to their first Starbucks and they're just overwhelmed by all the, the choices that they have. Back in North Korea, you went to your local coffee shop and it's just, okay, do you want the black coffee or do you want tea? Sure. Choose one or the other. And this, you know, this, this cultural adjustment is always the hardest thing. I mean, refugees will tell me that they don't know how to use an ATM machine, just like getting a bank card and, and using an ATM is challenging for them at first. And they, there are some refugees who have gone back to North Korea because they, they just feel safer there. Is they, that right? Yeah, yeah, there are some. I mean, not many, but not everybody goes to South Korea. Not everybody likes it. Um, so in terms of the – talk to me a little bit about the summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, what happened there? So – just to give you a little backdrop, the Winter Olympics happened in February in Pyeongchang, uh, South Korea. The um, North Koreans at the last minute, after they were threatening all these missile strikes, they decided that they wanted to send a delegation and they wanted to set up a joint hockey team with South Korea. So suddenly, yeah, so suddenly the mood swayed and okay. nobody knows for sure why North Korea did this, but I think just the nature of having an Olympics is always going to be an opportunity to men ties and sure. so, you know, it's always it's an opportunity that you want to take the new south korean president moon jae-in was just elected uh the previous may very new president wet behind the ears and he i think he needed some sort of success story you mm -hmm. know some sort of opening that would that he could give to his people and he saw this opportunity and he welcomed the north koreans he saw that he could bring these two leaders together you know he saw that donald trump wanted to do something historic in his presidency too so he was the guy moon jae-in who laid the foundations, who, you know, he went to North Korea, met with North Korean leaders, and, and just did some very speedy, skilled diplomacy in bringing together these two enemies. So what allowed President Trump and Kim Jong-un to come together? What are their commonalities? Is it just a need for, and President Moon conceivably, is it, a pre, is it just a need for media splash, or was there something underlying it? I think that the media splash did play a role, but yes, there was something underlying it. I think that Kim Jong-un and his North Korean regime have been developing their nuclear program for a long time now, and they've done a lot of damage to their relations with a lot of people around the world. I, they know that this can't continue. I mean, they know that you know they, they can perhaps continue building nuclear weapons, but at some point they have to come out of their hermitage and you know say hello to the world. and try to, you know, establish some sort of relationship because, you know, they, they need support. I mean, they, they, need, they need aid, you know, they need money, they need foreign currency, they need things that the outside world can give them. How advanced is their nuclear program? It's getting quite advanced according to the intelligence estimates. Um, so they either have already or soon will have the technology to miniaturize a warhead and put it on a missile. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always very careful about commenting on the North Korean nuclear program because we don't really know a whole lot about it. And we do know that in some of those parades, uh, in some of the photos you see in the news where they show the big missiles yeah. in the streets, you know, some of those are believed to be mock-ups that they're just, they're just fake or, you know, maybe the it's Potomkin missiles. Yeah. Yeah. Potomkin missiles. Exactly. So I, I mean, I, 
I, I, th I do think that the regime wants to give the impression that it's far along. They want to appear threatening in that way. I mean, I don't know how accurate some of these intelligence estimates are because we don't really have much human intelligence. In terms inside. of building the nuclear program, when did they start developing a nuclear program? In the, um, in, during the Cold War. I mean, it's, it's been going on a lot longer than we give it credit for. And did it, other countries help them? Uh, yes. So I don't know exactly uh, which countries were helping them. I would assume it was the Soviet Union and the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese tested their first nuclear weapon, I think, in the 1960s or 70s under Mao during the Cultural Revolution. And the, the North Koreans have always wanted to follow the, the Chinese especially. And is building a nuclear program a very expensive venture for a country? Oh, yes, yes. All that money that's being used you know, to fund that nuclear program could go to so many other things. But where are they getting the money? Well, nobody knows for sure. But yes, they invade. They evade their sanctions. They get, you know, they get money from, um, like I said before, selling uh, weapons and drugs around the world. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be enough to fund a nuclear program, but um, I think a lot of it is just the fact that they, you know, they they take their national resources and they pour it into the nuclear program. I mean, everything that they have is potentially going into this. And how dangerous is their nuclear program? In in to informed observers, is how high is the risk that they would actually attack another country using a nuclear weapon? Well, I think that history has shown that it only takes one miscommunication or one misinterpretation of someone's intentions mm -hmm. to spark a war. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's the danger, and I think that a lot of analysts here in Washington, D.C. have already... So that's the, that that's the bigger concern, is that the trigger would be a miscommunication rather than a rational decision. Yes, yes. North Korea is a rational actor. There's mm -hmm. nothing crazy about the, the things that they do in that sense. They have their own, it seems crazy to us, but they have their own rational reasons for mm -hmm. doing these things. I, I think that... Um, Conceivably to stay in power. Yeah, to stay in power, to, to get foreign currency, to sustain mm -hmm. some sort of basic economy. I think that, um, you know... There's something deeper here, and it's just that if you're a dictator and you want to inspire your people, having a nuclear weapon is the ultimate marker of prestige. And it's also the ultimate defense against foreign attack. It is. Because when you're in a pre-nuclear state, you're still susceptible to foreign invasion. Yes. Once you're genuinely a credible nuclear power country, that's a nuclear power, right? Because there's a huge risk. I mean, I'm assuming that... You're most, if you're a leader who's seen as a pariah leader or a pariah state, you're most vulnerable to foreign attack just before you're credibly nuclear. Yes, yes. And how close is Kim Jong-un to being credibly nuclear? Or is he credibly nuclear? I think he's credibly nuclear. Yeah. Which is why people won't attack him. No, no. And to understand this, you really have to get inside the mindset of North Koreans and the regime and how their propaganda works. Because as I said earlier, the Korean War never ended. Yeah. The, the North Koreans still see themselves as being in a state of war against South Korea and America. And Do South Koreans also see that? No, not really. Okay. The South Koreans don't care about North Korea. They, there's not much interest in North Korea there. Got it. But uh, the North Koreans see themselves in this perpetual state of war. And every, a lot of things that they've done in their history has essentially been war by other means. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to build our economy and defeat the South Koreans through our economic growth. It didn't work out in the end. But this is, you know, what's going through their head. And this is why a nuclear deterrent is the ultimate, you know, act that they, the, the ultimate thing that they can have to, to 
prevents you know more conflict from happening. So what happened at the summit between Kim Jong Un and President Trump? It was, um, you know, <laughs> in some ways it was goofy, um, but I think that Donald Trump actually did some skilled maneuvering there. Uh, he 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 showed up and he you very much got the impression that Trump was in charge. He didn't okay. smile. Um, you know, he was certainly taller than Kim Jong-un, who is this, you know, this chubby little kid. How tall is Kim Jong-un? He's not that tall. I don't, I don't know for certain. But, but you really got the impression there that Donald Trump was the father figure coming in. And oh, he's more than twice this... Kim Jong-un's age. Yeah. Right? He's about twice Kim Jong-un's age. Yeah, right? yeah. It was clear in the negotiations that Trump was in charge. And you, you saw his seriousness. You know, he, he also uh, prodded Kim Jong-un a little bit. He, he made a joke about his weight at some point. And, you know, like Kim Jong-un really, he was sitting there with... fatter between the two? Kim Jong-un is. Is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you see them sit, like, when they sat down together in the the room, um, you actually saw Donald Trump kind of sitting back and looking comfortable and looking like he was his normal self. And Kim Jong-un just looked kind of nervous and uncomfortable, and he was kind of squirming in his chair a little bit. And you you really, like, I, I think that the theatrics really showed that America is the country in control here. And that's the impression they wanted to give. Which is interesting, because you would think of Kim Jong-un as a reasonably confident individual. Yeah. Well, he's very young. He's not... He, he has been in power for seven years now. Eight, uh, let's see. Yeah, seven years about. So he does have experience, and he knows what he's doing, and he has done those purges. He knows how to keep power, without yeah. a doubt. But when you're the North Korean leader, and you've been you know, making all these threats the past decade... And then suddenly you're meeting with the guy who you've been threatening. I would just imagine that there's some cognitive dissonance that goes on. There's, there's, Kim Jong Un to me did not look very comfortable. And it's also um, at the end of the day, Trump's home turf. I mean, Singapore is closer to American home turf. And there were all those stories that the North Korean regime was asking the Singaporeans or the Americans to pick up the hotel bill. It didn't seem like they were fully comfortable. Yeah, I've I've spoken with people in the Singaporean government. And they have told me that internally they were not that comfortable with what was going on um, because, well, first of all, it's expensive to host this sort of summit. But then second of all, your Singaporeans spend... weren't comfortable. Yeah. Some, okay. some people in the Singaporean okay. government were not comfortable. Okay. Um, and these are people who I talked to in various ministries, but they were uncomfortable because, well, first of all, you know, North Korea is a country that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. And they were just wondering, what's the purpose of this? Is this really going to have much you know, benefit for us if we host this, or are we just going to look clownish, you know, if this goes wrong, like we're going to, then we're going to have to take some of the brunt of, you know, something that goes wrong. But that said, I mean, it, it did go pretty well. The summit, you know, it was smooth. And I, I don't think that the disagreements were that strong. And what were the agreements at the end of the summit? I mean, what ground was gained? So contrary to what's been said in the media and in a lot of analyst reports, the North Koreans have never agreed to end their nuclear program mm-hmm. or to denuclearize mm-hmm. in any way whatsoever. Um, you know, that's something that you kind of get the impression that they might do it, but they've never said it. The Americans agreed... And they have no reason to give that up so quickly. Yeah, well, yeah. well they've been working on it for decades. Yeah. Why, Why would they, they do now? that? Yeah. But then not only that, the process of denuclearizing will take years. I mean, sure. this is not something that you can... You don't just walk in and say, all right, let's blow up the nukes, let's get rid of them. And it wouldn't be credible if somebody gave up, if a nation state gave up a program they've been working on for decades yeah. in the span of a summit. Yeah, yeah. But North Korea did get exactly what it wanted from America, and they've wanted this for years. They got an end to the American-South Korean military exercises this year. 
Donald Trump I came out. That, yeah. yeah, Donald Trump came out and surprised his own commanders when he said, "We are going to um, stop this exercise." In your estimation, was that a good move? No, that was a terrible move. That was a mistake, and I think that that was unplanned. I think that he made that decision in the talks. I don't think that he was totally thinking about the implications. No, is it that Donald Trump has an instinct? I'm trying to get into the dynamics of the of the summit. That Donald, I mean, because what, my sense of it is, it's ultimately good to talk. Yeah. Uh, talking, I mean, because really, what the Americans stood to gain, they couldn't expect any huge concessions. What they stand to gain is to bring a possible rogue actor into the fold. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what they still stand to gain. That's what they stand to gain, and I, and I understand that a lot of allies are a little concerned, partly because there are very legitimate human rights issues, all this kind of thing, and why would you give them validity? But partly because they don't want, you know, people are worried that, well, if rogue actors are being brought into the fold, what does it mean for medium actors? Yeah. Yeah. People don't want to lose their place in line in the inner circle. Yeah. Um, all this being said, it sounds like, is it fair to say Kim Jong-un is more into the fold now than he was at the start? I think so. I mean, I think that when he came out, we, we, um, you know, we, we don't know him that well yet, but when you meet him face-to-face and you see him on TV for the first time outside of North Korea, you um, I, I think that it humanizes him in some way. You see that he's somebody who actually can sit down and talk. I mean, the first person to humanize Kim Jong-un was actually Dennis Rodman, Yes, right? yes. And who's also a friend of President Trump's from The Apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, he's, was he actually a common link diplomatically? Do we well, have any reason to believe he actually reports between the two no. leaders? No, no, no. And he, you know, he during that summit he showed up on CNN and he was an analyst talking about North Korean affairs, which I, I thought was kind of fun. I mean, that was you know one of the highlights of, of well, that whole thing. Well, he has genuine insight. Yeah, he does. And the 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 interesting thing the interesting thing about this is that before this summit, there were only a handful of foreign citizens who had met Kim Kim Jong Un, and they were our biggest intelligence assets. Yes. And they were Dennis Rodman. They were um, his his Japanese sushi chef who okay. now lives in I think in Tokyo now. Okay, uh, and then his whatever friends he had at his Swiss high school where he he went to school. He was a big fan. He had a collection of Nike shoes. Okay, uh, and then there's another man named Michael Spavor who is a fixer um, who was the guy who brought Dennis Rodman into North Korea, and he was one of the first. He's a Canadian citizen, but he met Kim Jong Un. So these were just the small number of people who actually had access to this regime. Nobody else, I mean, nobody in the American government, nobody in an American company, you know, nobody in, in North America and Canada really had that level of insight. And what are the next steps in U.S.-North Korean relations? So that's a, that's a tough question. So I, I do think that there is some promise to diplomacy because mm-hmm. we just have no other option. I mean, I, I just, my concern is that Donald Trump has you know, made some moves against the State Department. I, I'm concerned that there's no functioning bureaucracy right now staffed with, you know, experts who have done this for years, who can sit down with them and, you know, who can work the day-to-day details out. Um, I'm a little concerned that it's, you know, Donald Trump going in and it's it's all about Donald Trump. You, you suggested uh, in your earlier response that you think Donald Trump may have come up with the concession on the fly. In the meeting I, itself. Yeah, I, I do get that impression, or he at least came up with it pretty quickly beforehand, because he didn't tell his he didn't tell the Pentagon. They were surprised. They had no idea. But you know, doing that 
kind of going against the policy of your own military, of your own defense department. I'm just concerned about the message that that sends to the North Koreans, that they can play with him, that they can mess with him. I mean, I don't think that Donald Trump is stupid, but, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe they went back in North Korea and they said, well, why don't, you know, next time at the next summit, why don't we do this? Why don't we, you know, see if we can throw this concession out and see what he does last minute? Yeah, he he's certainly not stupid. The question is, does what is his negotiating tactic there? I mean, it, it's interesting because out of all the world leaders, he's the one with the book, right? That yes. tells exactly his negotiating style. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think surprises are part of the negotiating style. Yeah. Well, his big thing is negotiating from a position of strength. Mm -hmm. And I think that he did exactly that. He did the art of the deal on North Korea. Yeah. So... Um, shortly before the summit, he went on Twitter, and this was, I think, about a month before, but he threatened to pull out, and yes. uh, he, he wrote that letter to Kim Jong-un and said, you know, this is silly, why would we do this? And he, he threw this fit, and then suddenly, after that, the North Koreans and Americans agreed again, yes. okay, we're going to meet. And I think that he kept doing this, he, he kept doing things like this in the months in yes. the, leading up to the summit, because he wanted to keep them on their toes. Yes. He wanted to, He wanted them to know that this was not going to be easy, that they're going to have to work for this summit. It's not just America doing everything. Now, one thing about the stopping of military exercise, which was, grant, which was granted a big piece of news, was President Trump's thinking on this, that because he's generally trying to reduce military expenditures of a certain type. I mean, there's some, like the Space Force that he's increasing, but some traditionally expenditures he's trying to decrease. Was that part of his reasoning anyway? You mean the... That this is a way to reduce, you know, he's generally for reducing military expenditure. So, hey, here's a line item I can cut. Yeah, so yes, I actually, I was thinking about that when the summit happened, um, that, you know, he he's one of these populist leaders who has this idea, you know, America should draw down, withdraw mm -hmm. from the world. And this would fit in with his trade war, with the tariffs that he's putting up right now. You know, we're going to we're going to put up tariffs. We're going to withdraw our military and and let them pay, let their country pay yeah. for their own defense. Um, so yes, that would fit into his overall worldview. But um, you know, announcing this during military exercises just seemed like weird timing. You know, because because the, the exercises were going on, you know, around the same time, and it just you know it, it seems like something that would be worked on at the staff level, you know, for for many months. And that, you know, would be announced with the right timing when exercises are not happening, you know, when relations are a little bit better. It just seems like something that would take a little more negotiation. For sure. I mean, in, in, traditionally, although President Trump is not a big believer in um, sort of working with the staff level that way, no. is, is my understanding of how, how he operates. How is that? I mean, so that piece of information, when the North Korean regime gets it, do they see an opportunity there or do they do they look at this as, OK, because the American establishment, I'm guessing to the North Koreans, would be seen as somebody who will never work with them. Mm -hmm. Do they appreciate or do they see an opportunity that this guy doesn't work with the American establishment, however you want to measure that sort of thing? You talk about State Department bureaucracy, the absence, for example, of a State Department bureaucracy around Asia, around yeah. Asia expertise, which would traditionally be opposed to conciliation with North Korea. Yeah, I, I do think that they would be naturally opposed because the, the experts, the bureaucrats, have been through this before. Mm -hmm. North Korea and the U.S. and a number of other countries had the six-party talks under yeah. the George Bush administration. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of these negotiators um, 
they were frustrated the entire time. I mean, they were just, they, they felt that, you know, dealing with the North Koreans, they, they could see that the North Koreans were masters nego- master negotiators. Is that right? Oh, yeah. They and see they, North Koreans as master negotiators. Yeah, as excellent negotiators at the table. They what know, makes them excellent? They, they know how to draw promises or how to draw um, expectations out of people without giving a clear promise in return. And is that simply because they have the possible threat of being nuclear and attacky? Is that reputation a huge advantage of their negotiation strategy? Yeah, North Korea is in some sense a blackmail state. They use that that threat, that looming atmospheric to kind of give you the impression that if you don't work with them, well then we're going to we're going to shoot you. Yeah, it's right. a mafia right. state. But that that's only one side of the story. It's also just their perilous position throughout their entire history. Um, you know, they've been sandwiched between big powers. They fought a bloody, vicious Korean War. I mean, the Korean War, it's a forgotten war today, but the, um, you know, the bombing that they had to go through, the, the leveling of their country, the, the death toll that they had was just devastating. Um, you know, and then afterwards, the, the Communist Party purges. And is the fact that they're not a democracy and therefore the leader you could expect him to be around for the next 30 years, does that give them negotiating power? At these tables, when you're looking across and you know the U.S. president's got a maximum six years left. I think it does. I think it does. Because you sit down with them, you know that probably, you know, this regime is not going to collapse. I mean, I I think that most North Korea experts have come to the conclusion that it's going to be around for a while. Because we're we're always wrong on these predictions of Mm -hmm. collapse. And just having the same leader in power for that long gives them leverage because they can promise, you know, in some sense... If they say, we're going to do this, then maybe they might actually do it because there's not going to be a different leader who brings a different agenda. What do you see as the future for North Korea? What do you, what do you see happening in the next five, ten years? A lot of people say that maybe it'll become the next China. Maybe they'll embark on reform or a Vietnam. They, they might have some similar scenario. I don't see that yet. I think that North Korea is different from your typical um, East Asian or East European communist nation that reformed after the Cold War. I think the North Koreans are more fascistic in their worldview. They might have more in common with South Africa under apartheid or um, you know, uh, Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. They're, they're a more race-based nation. And this is one of the big debates in the North Korea community over the, the nature of the regime. And, and based on that nature, based on that premise, where is it heading? I don't think that the regime's legitimacy is really linked that strongly to economic growth. You know, I think that in China, that's the case. In Vietnam, that's the case. I think that the regime's legitimacy is linked more towards the promise of defending and protecting the people, the the master race, so to speak, the purest race uh, against foreign powers who are seeking to, you know, launch an invasion of it. And that's how it's been since the Korean War. So it's it's a military state, you know. It's it's a different. It's a racial military fascistic country, and this is something that the North Korea expert B. R. Myers has written a lot about. His ideas are somewhat controversial, but um, you know, I, I do think that he's right on a lot of parts. And what do you see as your economic future in the next five ten years? I think that you know there will be small openings, and I do think that there is room. If you're, say, a foreign investor, there is room to actually make money there and to, to change things. I mean, if you go in there as, as some sort of businessman or a diplomat or, or whatever, NGO worker, you know, North Koreans don't get to meet foreigners that much. And if you're just meeting them, sometimes you can make a difference that way. I mean, they are human and they do see, you know, people doing things. 
So what is the expat community like in North Korea? Very small, very small. It's it's the kind of community where everybody knows everyone. There used to be a bar under one of the embassies, or, or I'm sorry, I, there was a bar um, in the basement of the World Food Program, I believe, mm -hmm. where everyone would, it was like the haunt where you kick back on Friday night. And it's one of those environments where, you know, everybody's, you know, there's not much to do in Pyongyang. I mean, it's it's a very dry so what, city. So, 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 <laughs> well, well, so what do you do? Do you go to movies? Do you... Go to the mall. Like, what's happening? What What is a Saturday afternoon looking like in Pyongyang? They do have shopping malls. They do have, you know, things to do. I mean, you can go to museums and see monuments. It's going to be propaganda. But, um, you know, it's, I mean, everyday life, it's, like, living in North Korea, I've heard from people there that it's it's something that you have to get used to because it can get very lonely and isolating you don't have much access to the outside world. I mean, you, you can access the internet if you're a foreigner. You can... You can access the internet. Yeah, if you're a foreigner, if you're okay. a foreign citizen, expat living there. But I've, just, I've heard from expats there that it's the kind of place that shows promise, that there's a lot of untapped potential in the country. Sometimes it can be a little bit dull. You know, you just have to get used to that. You have to... You can't have your cake and eat it, too. Are there parks? Are there... Is there a lot of outdoor activity? Yeah, yeah, there are parks. The North Koreans are a, a jovial people on the weekends, um, just like the South Koreans. They they all go to the park together. They, uh, you know, they drink soju out in the picnics in the park in the afternoon. That's a common way of enjoying yourself and having barbecue, Korean uh, pork barbecue yeah. and that sort of thing. A karaoke is very popular. I mean, I've, I've, I went to a North Korean karaoke. That was a lot of fun. Where, and the songs are South Korean songs or? A North Korean propaganda songs mostly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the songs I remember distinctly was called, it was a hit they told me in North Korea at the time, it was called Let's Go to Mount Paekdu. Mount Paekdu is the holy mountain of North Korea. It's up, up near China, and it's where the leader Kim Jong-il was rumored, according to propaganda, he was born near the base of the mountain <laughs> under a star that flew over. And they, they, they venerate this mountain as being the mythical source of the Korean people, the Korean race, so to speak. And what is the role of religion, traditional religion, in North Korea? There are a few churches. I think that on last count, there were four churches in Pyongyang. They're mostly reserved for, um, you know, for foreign citizens who are looking to, you know, they need a place of worship. When I was in North Korea, they took me to a, some, they claimed that this was a Buddhist temple. Okay. But when I spoke with somebody in our group, they said, you know, this is somebody who had been going to North Korea for years, and they said that these churches and monasteries are probably fake. They're probably just fronts. And so Korean people um, would be what? what? What religion, for, for example, what religions are followed in South Korea? Are people Buddhists or people... So uh, in South Korea? Yeah. South Korea is... I'm assuming it would be similar makeup in North Korea. Well, actually, so... It's... To some extent, yes. I mean, in terms of traditional shamanistic religions, mm -hmm. after the during and after the Korean War, the North Korean Christians fled south as refugees. So North Korea, ironically, uh, used to be called the Jerusalem of the East. Is that right? A hundred years ago. Why? That was where proselytizing happened. Lots of Western missionaries went there, American and British and European missionaries. And they turned Pyongyang into a, a, Christian, a little Christian hub. A hundred years ago. About a hundred years ago, yeah. This is turn of the century, 20th century. Wow. So North Korea for a long time was the Christian hub. 
a lot of these Christians were heavily involved in, in anti-Japanese movements. They saw the Japanese as oppressors. And right. They saw Christianity as... So that's what created the arbitrage opportunity. It, yes, yeah, yeah. And they saw Christianity as a, um, a great leveler, you know, that we're all the sure. same before God. And therefore, you know, we, we can't worship this Japanese emperor. We have to worship sure. God. So the Japanese wanted to suppress that. They did not like mm-hmm. Western Christianity in Korea. Um, after, so, so in the lead up to the Korean War and during the Korean War. Elites generally don't like the introduction of new yeah. religious ideas anywhere. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. What's the medical care system? So, you know, I have heard from the um, World Food Program and WHO officials, these types of people in North Korea, that the government does request help from them. And the, the North Korean government knows that they have problems. It's, it's not like they're trying to suppress, you know, the food shortages that they have in the countryside. But, um, you know, I, whatever they have in terms of their health system is obviously not enough to cope with that. But it, the, the food situation has been improving. In the 1990s, North Korea had a famine and yeah. about one million people died. And was that, a, that was a crop issue? Uh, yeah, so that was a subsidy issue. That was okay. the collapse of Soviet Got it. subsidies that plunged the country into famine. They were too dependent on outside powers. It's a lesson they've learned. The, um, when this famine happened, one million people, an estimated one million died. That was the start of the exodus of all these North Korean refugees escaping to South Korea. And ever since then, the situation is improving. I mean, they, North Koreans are not starving in large numbers anymore. Um, they do have, you know, a lot of their basic needs being met compared to in the past. So, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to be grim about it. I mean, I, I'm not going to say that this is like a great situation, but it's not horrific anymore either. And within North Korean society, what is the overall sentiment right now? Is there a sense of optimism? Is there a sense of concern? Depends on who you ask within the society. And, and put party elites out of it, for, because uh, I'm assuming their message is tailored to a certain extent. Yeah. But uh, ordinary people in society. Yeah. Well, you know, even visiting North Korea, if you talk to any local person, they're not going to tell you anything about what, how they really feel. They're going to tell you the official line, because you know you can't really talk out against that, especially to a foreigner okay. when you're screwed. Um, you know, like screwed meaning what? You would lose your livelihood, or you might go to a camp. Uh, you, I, I don't think you would go to a camp right away, but you definitely get a few months or more of some sort of disciplinary detention. Okay. You know, it does happen, and you know, you do have to, um, you have to be very careful in North Korea about what you say to local people because okay. even if you say something wrong to them, they might get in trouble. Got if you it. take a photo of something that reflects badly on them, mm-hmm. they can get in trouble. So one example is the the statues of Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il out in the town squares. When you take a photo of the statues, you have to get the entire statue in the photo. You can't cut off an arm or cut off part of his head because that is disrespect to Got the great it. leader. Okay. If you do that and let's say your government minder um, doesn't catch you, like like he just lets it slide and then say you put it in the news later, that photo, the, the regime might actually go to him and say, why did you let that journalist take that terrible photo of our leader? And he'll get in trouble. So you have to be careful about what you're doing there. So you hear, uh, you hear horrific stories about human rights abuses, abuses in North Korea. Uh, you also hear about foreigners who have been taken by the state. They've been captured by state or held hostage by the state. Uh, you hear about the Otto Warmbier story, the uh, young man from Virginia. Uh, 
what's happening there? Why? Uh, so this is a state. Because the picture you're painting is of a state that's also looking f to the outside and looking at ways to create links to the outside world. Yeah. Why? What is happening where um, foreigners are being held by the state in such high-profile situations? Yeah. So lots going on there. The um, the North Korean state, you know, they when they arrest foreigners they're not just picking random people and arresting them. I mean, usually they do commit some acts that the North Korean government would interpret as a serious crime. Okay. Uh, I'm not justifying it. That's just how sure, they see sure. it. Sure, yeah. So, you know, one example was a few years ago, one man who was a, a Christian left a Bible in the bathroom of the Chongjin Sailors Club. And I actually visited this club and I saw the place where he left the Bible. I was just curious to see okay. what they were saying. But um, he left it in a trash bin or something, okay. and some cleaner found it and then reported it to the authorities, so they arrested him. And he was held for quite a long time in North Korea. He's, he was from where? This guy was American. Okay. I, I don't remember his name right now. Okay. I have to look it up. Okay. Um, but, you know, there, there are lots of people like this. There, were, uh, there was Yuna Lee and Lisa Ling, the two journalists who okay. were arrested about 10 years ago. They were caught uh, attempting to cross into North Korea, and they had, you know, cameras out, and they were filming... You right. know, and it, so there was evidence that they were actually crossing illegally into North Korea. So the guards saw them, chased them, you know, back into China and apprehended them. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is the kind of thing that they get arrested for. What happened with Otto Warmbier? Otto was a unusual case. I mean, a very tragic case because usually when these people are arrested, they're let off, you know, through some state visit. Jimmy Carter goes or Bill Clinton shows up and they're released. Otto Warmbier was kept for, I think, more than a year in North Korea, and through much of that time, he was in a coma, but we didn't know. The North Korean government, through some circumstance, something happened, and he fell into a coma. We don't know what it was. The doctors who examined him in America said that it was consistent with oxygen deprivation to his brain. Um, so, you know, I mean, that could mean that they, you know, they threw him... In, underwater or something, maybe deprived him of oxygen that way, tortured him in some way. We don't know what happened. What we do know is that he was with a tour group um, you know, as a student, and he was he was staying at the uh, Yanggakdo Hotel in Pyongyang. Now, on one of the floors, I stayed at the same hotel, on, and there's one floor that's missing in the hotel when you're taking the elevator. And on this floor, it's where they apparently store all the propaganda posters. Okay. So he and his colleagues had been drinking quite a bit that day or that colleagues night. Mean fellow tour fellow tourists, okay. fellow tourists, and um, the North Korean government published camera footage that showed him entering this room, uh, this this floor that was supposed to be closed off, and you know defacing, like tearing down propaganda. When you mean drunk. closed off, you mean on the elevator, just doesn't say floor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You you just don't like. There's a floor there that's missing, and it's okay. just it's not clear. But I, there there are ways. I mean, I you can get there. Like you can okay. if you wander into that room by accident through the stairs or something. Okay, that's um you know that's how you get there. But uh, he was caught on camera, you know, allegedly tearing down propaganda. Um, so I mean, it doesn't the camera doesn't show his face. So that's why I say allegedly. And okay. it's North Korea, so I'm not going to give credibility to everything okay. that they say. Um, he was arrested at the airport, detained. The The rest of the tour group flew off without him. Um, you know, the, the tour company that handled this was criticized quite a bit 
in the press for the way that they handled it, just mm-hmm. just leaving him there and flying out. You know, mm-hmm. how could you do that? Uh, so he was, you know, in North Korean captivity for a while, and they held his his trial. Um, you know, he was found guilty of whatever crime, propaganda, defacing, and then he disappeared from the public eye. Nobody know what happened to him. He was assumed for a long time to be just in North Korean hands, and people were wondering, you know, is Bill Clinton going to show up again and get him out? But after a long time, um, I think this was the spring of 2017, I'd have to double check, He um, North Korea just released him. He was in a coma. They got him out. They said, all right, he's going back to America. And nobody knows for sure why they did that, but um, he arrived in America. He was in Ohio uh, at the medical center there. And then he passed away, sadly, after being in a coma. So this was the first case in recent memory in which an American citizen actually died in North Korean captivity. And is the idea that the North Koreans mishandled, is the idea thinking within North Korea that they mishandled the situation? Is that why they released him? So from my understanding of North Korean culture and how North Korea works, I think that they made some sort of mistake. Maybe they gave him they gave him some sort of medication or a pill that he wasn't supposed to take. Or I, I don't know, but I think that there was some error that put him into a coma, and his situation was deteriorating. I don't think that they wanted him to die in their hands. I think that his condition got so bad that they figured out the the only way to handle this is to wash our hands of it and get him out of here and just send him to America, and then maybe they can do something about it. Or maybe even revive him. Yeah, maybe revive him or maybe, you know, he'll die over there. Um, You know, this is all speculation. I don't know for certain what happened, but the North Koreans are extremely concerned about, you know, their face and how the world sees them. They don't want to be seen as the bad guys. Mm -hmm. They don't want, you know, an American student to die in their hands as a tourist. I mean, it just just looks terrible. They know that people hate them already. And I think that that was a face-saving measure to just get him out and just to, you know, send him away and just... Like, get rid of the situation and just see, you know, maybe something can happen that'll revive him. And tour groups, do people go... I mean, that's a tragic story. I mean, it's it's hard to think about. In terms of tour groups, can ordinary citizens go to North Korea on a tour group? Is that an easy thing to do through this office at the UN? Yes, yes. It's easy. So the UN office would be if you're a journalist or you need some, some other access, an official trip. But if you want to be a tourist, there are a number of companies based in Beijing, and mm-hmm. uh, there's one in America, in New York. There are a few others, but they they arrange tours to North Korea. This is you know something that's fairly easy to do, surprisingly easy. Now the only thing is that after Otto Warmbier died, the U.S. government banned American citizens from traveling as tourists to North Korea. So you know I think that a lot of Americans missed that chance if they did want to visit. But yeah, if you're Canadian, if you're from anywhere else. You can sign up and you can go. It's, you know, fairly easy. Jeff, we've had a good conversation today that's touched on a number of topics. I want to thank you again for being here. Tell me again about the book you're publishing. So my book is tentatively titled The Republic of Samsung. It'll be published by Crown in February 2019. It's about South Korea and the rise of the Samsung Empire as the company that created this nation. And where else can people read your work? You can find me online on my website, jeffreykane.net. Um, I'm also very active on Twitter. My hashtag is at Jeffrey underscore Kane. And what publications can people find your articles in? Foreign Policy, The New Republic, uh, The Nation, many others, The Wall Street Journal.
Jeff, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks, Audrey. And so that is uh, us today. Uh, thank you for the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.